Madeline here, part two, and I'm realizing tired brain. I'm finding myself increasingly like thinking one word and saying a different word or, or just not quite, the brain's not quite engaging. And there's a few parts in this first section that I misspoke and I just don't have the energy to begin to re-record it. Um, so uh, I said pillars of ME, but I meant to say pillars of post-viral syndrome. There's the four of them, ME, fibro, some sort of immune dysregulation, which is for me an immune deficiency and um, multiple chemical sensitivities. You can have one, you can have weird combinations of them, but they tend to be at play. Um, and then I said $1,000 less than a healthy person's minimum wage, like per month. That's here in BC. Um, that's our, our cost of living, and that's what's quantified as a minimum, like the, the, the least they feel a person can live on um, in this province. And we are $1,000 less than that as persons with disabilities on assistance. Um, uh, I feel like I've forgotten something else, but if you hear sections where you're thinking, like, that doesn't sound right, it's probably that I've, I'm misspeaking. And, and, uh, and oh, I think I said something about mono. Um, I misspoke about the mononucleosis as well. Um, there were two rounds of mono. I can't remember what it was. Oh my God. There have been times in which if I didn't know I had ME, I would be like, do I have Alzheimer's? <laughs> because this is crazy. And I think one of the things that's the most frustrating part of my illness, I had a naturopath say way back that you are a healthy person. Sorry, you are an, he said, you are an energetic person trapped in a healthy person's body. No, that's not what he said. Oh my God. I can't think at all right now. You are a energetic person trapped in a, in a tired person's body. So if anybody was wondering about what brain fog looked like, <laughs> I'm not going to re-record that either. This is how I am. I broke it. Um, many of the people that I've um, done volunteer work for, um, it's really hard to get people to understand um, because I am, my personality is kind of an energetic personality that if you don't have the fuel to run it, you're not, you're not a different person. You're just a person without the fuel to run that personality. So I, I tried to explain to somebody, it's like if you had a Ferrari with a teeny tiny little, you know, gas tank. So it makes a great lawn ornament, but it's not really going to do a whole bunch. But if you look at it, you think, oh, that's a Ferrari. That's really powerful. But, but that's not the case. And I know even when I communicate, like I was listening to the first section and it's like, oh, you sound energetic. Are they going to understand that you are just working outside your energy envelope to begin to do that? I mean, yes, you're getting me all sort of addle-brained as I'm extra crunchy tired, but, um, you know, I'm held together by the, the treatments I'm doing. And as I deteriorate, I can't get the tops off prescription bottles. I can't get up to go to the washroom. Like I'm, I'm literally like doing three and four attempts to, to get myself upright. My muscles are like they're made out of styrofoam. And, you know, it's, it's really scary. I mean, like just trying to do things like put on sunscreen the other day to try to get out to an appointment, you know, by the time I had put my pants on and like at the act of rubbing it in was like, I was weightlifting all of the muscles burned. You know, I was in a call with a friend because sometimes when I'm in calls with people, it's easier to navigate the pain, the mitochondrial pain, because like how that manifests 
is, is literally like you were weightlifting. And so if there's a healthy person listening or a person not with ME, if you sort of take a weight or even just a tin of, tin of beans or something and, and hold them straight out from your, from your shoulder, just straight out, let gravity start pulling and your muscles are going to start to burn. And then you have to keep it, keep it out there and they're going to burn more and they're just going to keep on burning and hold it out there. So you can't, you just can't hold it anymore. And this is how I'm starting my day, you know, and I have to sort of get supplements in me to get rolling. I have to get up a lot earlier to get these supplements in, to begin to have the body have any energy to even get to an appointment you know and and having an hour and a half energy envelope that's my energy envelope and the energy within that is garbage energy means that I'm constantly working outside my energy envelope there is no way not to an hour and a half I mean I mean during the COVID lockdowns it was half an hour that's not even the energy it takes to get up and use the washroom over the course of the day and considering the crazy edema the 12 pound swing in a day then it really is not enough so this hour and a half means that I'm constantly outside of my energy envelope and I had one physician quantify it as um, like borrowing money from the mob you will pay for it and, and that's the thing that many healthy people don't understand about this illness is that you can do some things but you will pay for it. I'll be capsized for days. I'll struggle to just even get up. I won't eat. You know, I'll have to start keeping protein bars in my bed because the, 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 the burn or, or even just the lack of strength, but the muscle burn if I try to force myself through the weakness. And then all of that, you know, so when you have ME paired with the illnesses, those three, four pillars I've talked about, the ME and the fibro in particular, boy, do they love to argue with each other. So the ME has its own kind of a pain. And once that starts ringing, then the fibro turns up the volume on it. And of course, for me, there's a whole bunch of architectural issues that are painful all on their own. And so it's already clacks and wailing. And then it has something that amps it up. And, and the more pain I'm in, the more energy that eats. So then the mitochondrial disorder gets worse, which means that muscle burn, that pain amplifies, which then amplifies the fibro and around and around and around we go with that one. And it is brutal. And of the few things that are recommended to help with fibro pain, the multiple chemical sensitivities put the kibosh on those. Recently, I've become chemically sensitive to even Advil and Tylenol. And keeping in mind, they don't address the fibro, they just address the architectural issues that are clacks and wailing and, and slamming into the fibromyalgia. So now those are off the table and I hope to God if I go off them for a couple of months, I can go back on them again, but there's no guarantee of that. So, uh, and all of this is exacerbated by the um, immune deficiency because that immune system, because it can't do its job properly. I was getting infections and cuts in three hours. Like I could watch it like, clockwork until we tweaked one of the intravenous it was awful I recently had even with the increase in the um, that particular element in the intravenous I had the sinusitis go systemic not like maybe like a month a month and a half ago and that's just I was just too tired I was too tired and the immune system just didn't have the juice it needed to begin to try to limp along and do its job. Because when that immune deficiency has any sort of problem, then it asks for way more energy than that, that system 
um, that mitochondrial system is built to give it. I mean, different parts of your body are kind of allotted a certain amount of energy. And when there's an issue, I actually have my own theory. This is my theory, not anybody else's. So it's not like some medical research thing. It's just based on my own observation and speculation that I think there is primary mitochondrial disorder where some element of the energy production system has become compromised or damaged. Um, and there is secondary mitochondrial sy um, uh, syndrome where some part of the body is asking for so much more energy than, than it's allotted for that the mitochondrial system is failing and will eventually become a primary mitochondrial disorder if it isn't um, propped up and, and hopefully if possible and not possible for everybody or maybe not possible for very many people, I don't know. Um, but if you're not propping it up and giving it extra, then um, extra of sort of the, the, the core biochemical elements that it needs to produce energy. Then uh, these are my speculations, 40 years of me playing Sherlock and trying to figure things out all by myself pretty much. Um, that's kind of what left me, left me, uh, <laughs> with my little thoughts on things. And I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to decide if I want to go deep dive into what I'm doing because I do worry about people running off and spending money that they don't have on something that it really depends on how your biochemical system is working or not working, whether they're going to work for you and whether they might actually harm you. There isn't one treatment. There will never be one treatment for mitochondrial disorder. This is a system far more complex than rocket ships. And um, it breaks in a million different ways. And I keep saying, cancer is a family of disorder. And so there is a bunch of different ways to treat it. I think that this disease needs to be looked at in that way. That, that this is, you know, even the name ME. I don't think all mitochondrial disorders are ME. I think that is a family and so I don't like that the whole thing is being slathered with it because how many mitochondrial patients are being left out in the cold because they don't fit properly within that moniker, within that still kind of shady because it's all subjective. Oh, the doctor is observing and saying this is what the patient is reporting rather than for the love of God, look at the biochemistry. <laughs> you tell I have my knickers in a twist about all this. So let's talk about something fun. Um, how I've navigated this deterioration and how I've navigated the loss of being able to pursue working um, is purpose. Um, it's critical, critical to my survival. And, um, and so I think I thought maybe talking about, first of all, because it, it's kind of fun, the very first thing. Uh, the very first play that got me interested in um, performing. Um, and again, keeping in mind that for me, performing is about communication. It's about sharing different points of view. It's about play. It's about helping people to break out if they're feeling like the world is too heavy or if they're caught in a narrow perspective. And that's not in a preachy kind of a way, that's in a playful way, like running around with crazy leaves in your hat, you know? And so the very first play that, well, not the first play, the first play is in the, in the um, podcast, the, the Santa. Um, this is the first play where I realized that maybe I was good at 
this. Maybe I should pursue this as a career. And, and that first play, the Santa one, I actually did have family members who were trying to push me into theater classes because I guess they saw something, but I, I didn't understand. I was just like, no. But this, um, we did a production of Cats, you know, Andrew, I think his name, Weber's, you know, the musical. And I wasn't a lead character. Like, <laughs> it was not. I was what they called an alley cat. And so what we did is we prowled around the audience and basically played with their shoelaces and leaned on their laps and, like, stared at them with that unrelenting view that a cat has. Sorry, I just realized I might have made some noise as I was trying to lie down. My back is screaming at me as I was sitting up. I find that um, the, the muscles on either side of the back when the mitochondrial disorder is, like, throwing me off a cliff it can't support the back anymore and then all of the vertebrae kind of crush down on each other and sit on the nerves so no more sitting up right now so sorry for making noise anyway so here I am doing this um doing this play <laughs> he uh our director was this PhD um uh uh, he had a PhD from Ireland or something. And so here he was teaching high school drama. Like, I don't know how the hell we got him, but he was amazing. And he taught us about character building and he, you know, and even though I was an, an alley cat, I, we all had to have names. I can't tell you my secret Jellicoe name because that's against the Jellicoe cat rules. But my other names were Alchemy Spiritoso. <laughs> I had so much fun making my own costume and defining my own makeup. I thought this is great. And then, you know, because I was an alley cat, I had to learn to keep my face in that inscrutable sphinx expression in the face of, you know, audience members. So I kept like practicing on my friends and completely freaking them out. Like, utterly I got really good at it and then came performance and I just thought this is so much fun the audience members are just really enjoying being in such a different environment and and having these sort of unusual things happen to them and and there was um I think the most notable example <laughs> example of that so there was a a sort of a, an aisle through the main section of seating and if you stood upright in that aisle then half of the audience couldn't see the stage anymore so when we wandered through that part we had to do it on all fours and mostly we're on all fours, but but this section in particular you had to. So I'm wandering along and praying with people's shoelaces and like sticking, sniffing their legs. And and I had this kind of fur stole as the top part of my outfit. And, and I, if I can find the picture, maybe I'll, I'll get Ash to share it up on the podcast of the uh, of the costume. Um, and and suddenly I realized that an an audience member is is petting me. Now, I am a jellico cat and you do not pet a jellico cat. And so I turned around and I hissed at her and she went, oh my. And all of her friends started giggling. <laughs> It was, but I stayed in character, but just listening to their delight, I thought, wow, what is this? And I had many of my classmates and some actual professional actors come up and say, you're really good. You should pursue this. And I thought, oh, what the heck are you talking about? Like, I, I don't understand. So, you know, I talked it over with my family and 
there was a, a thum, summer theater program and, and uh, sort of a, an adjunct of a professional theater um, company. And so I thought, what the hell? What the hell? I'll go and do that. And I think the reason that I'm sharing this, one of my friends said, I said, well, should I share this? Should I not? Like, I don't even really feel it's entirely my story. And she said, um, I think it's important for people to understand that you are a trustworthy person because this says to me about all the reasons that I'm friends with you because you are trustworthy. Um, I'm part of the nerd fighter community. So this is one of my little nerd, nerd sisters. And I mean, that community sort of came of age um, with a, a base that was quite young between like 14 and 22. And the time I got connected up with it, I was, oh, I don't know, probably my, my late thirties, I guess. And, and I did a little intro to them and I'll get Ash to post that up and you could hear more about my nerd fighter experience. But anyway, I've known her now for like 12 years. She's a dear, dear friend. And, and it was really hard to tell her about like me to tell her how poorly I am because I hadn't really told any of them. And, and, and she was crying and she was upset. And she's pretty much the reason that I, I started, I agreed to do the podcast because she's like, I think it's time, you know, for you to take a risk on being identified because my voice apparently is quite recognizable. Um, and so, you know, we were talking through like, what should I share? You know, and obviously the things that are from when I was younger are less identifiable with the community work that I, I now do. Um, and so she felt it was really important that I, I share an experience I had at that, at that summer program. <sighs> now I didn't think I was any good. So it was all like, there was all ages and we lived in the dorms and we did classes during the day. And some of the professional actors taught those. And some of them were just like you know, um, really, I mean, professionals from outside of that particular company who came in, but these were like top drawer people. And I just felt completely overwhelmed by it all. You know, I was having fun and everybody was super nice, but I also had so much self-doubt, like, oh my God, <laughs> so much self-doubt. I was probably about 15 at the time. So, you know, the kind of self-doubt that, you know, only a, 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 a person that age can really um, embody. You couldn't pay me money to be that age again, although my butt looked great. Um, and, uh, I came back from, uh, an evening class and, you know, not, not feeling great. And, and now of course, looking at it, um, doing that course at all was a mistake because I ended up working so far outside what was a larger energy envelope, but still I had a mitochondrial disorder that had been completely unrecognized. And so to spend like, what was it, over two weeks just in constant physical activity. So in the evenings, I was tired. I was really tired. So I was heading back to my dorm room, just like wanting to crash. And the room next to mine, there was like a, a semicircle of people outside the door. And I was thinking like, what's, what's going on, you know? And, uh, she's kind of like an RA. She kind of, she saw me and she grabbed a hold of me and, and some of the other older, um, participants in the program started saying like, go, go like knock on the door, knock on the door. And, and the persons who, whose room it was and, and who everybody seems super concerned about, I don't, I, nobody told me what had happened, but something had happened and she, um, had locked herself in the, in the room and, um, 
and then they wouldn't come out. And so everybody's all worried about them. And uh, I got elected for reasons I don't really understand, although I'm going to read you something and maybe that will explain what I didn't understand and what I still don't really understand. But anyway, so I go up and I knock on the door and lo and behold, she actually opens the door. She says, like, she's only you, only you come in. So I'm like, okay, okay. And so I come in and, and like they're pacing back and forth, pacing back and forth. And, and finally, um, like they just stand there and they're looking at me and they say this thing that's been really bothering them, I guess, you know, but, but the thing they said didn't seem like such a big deal to me. And, and so like, I'm waiting to hear what the big deal is. And I guess in a way, only a person that age can be innocent in my innocence and in my lack of understanding of, of why this would be an upsetting thing. Um, they just calmed down. They just calmed right down and then sat on the other bed and started telling me what they were concerned about. And I thought, Oh, I didn't really know anything about that, but okay. And, and then they started talking about like their hopes, hopes and dreams. And I thought, Oh, that'd be really cool. Um, and I don't feel like I can go into the particulars, even though it was like 35 years ago, it's still not my story to tell. Um, I only know it was a big deal because this person was, um, not mean, but a little bit prickly to most people. And I mean, this is way back in the eighties and, um, I was allergic to cigarette smoke and everybody smoked all the time, even in the cafeteria, but most people respected the fact I was allergic. And so at least while I was eating, they would refrain from smoking, but, but they wouldn't, and they'd move a little farther away. And I thought, oh, well, I, that's, you know, they're trying to be, but after this, after this conversation, <laughs> Like nobody was allowed to smoke anywhere near me. I thought, oh, wow, I don't know why, but suddenly like things are different. Um, but then when I was about to go home, the RA, the one who had sort of pulled me into the situation, who, if I had to guess, was probably in her 30s, I think, at the time. And I'm going to change the, obviously, the name she wrote is my in real life name, and I'll, I'll use the Madeline pseudonym. But this is what she wrote to me. She said, Madeline, you are considered the inspiration of the Academy. You are so strong in your ways and so devoted to your cause. I found myself, like many of the others, so often throughout the past few year, few weeks, looking to you for that extra boost of confidence, for that word of encouragement, or that beautiful smile that tells the world you respect and love it. Madeline, you have so much to offer and you give it wholeheartedly. I respect you for that. I truly wish nothing but the best for you, and I know you will succeed in whatever it is you do. As you plunge yourself into the upcoming activities that the next few years will offer, please remember that I'm supporting you. I've come to know and love you like no other. You are so independent, so proud, reliable, and determined. You are an asset to human life. I would be proud to call you my own. You know, I would never have been able to do my job effectively if it hadn't been for you. So many times the other students drained me. I thought I'd give no more, but then I'd see you and I'd realize the purpose for my being here. 
I thank you, Madeline. I needed you here this year, as I'm sure so many others did. Good luck, Madeline. You deserve the best. You're a wonderful person, and it's been truly rewarding to have you in my life the past five weeks. Oh, it was five weeks. I've missed you. I'll, I'll miss you, Madeline. Hey, you know something? You're going to have the best. You could have knocked me over with a feather. I don't remember talking to her all that much. <laughs> I just remember this, you know, envelope of insecurity, mostly. Um, so I guess why I also am choosing to share this is there is this idea that when you become PWD, like you're worth less or you came from, you know, nothing. I mean, like after this... Um, you know, this academy experience, I crashed out so hard and I developed the first of what, you know, is now three different autoimmune disorders. I just became more and more ill, but this is who I am. You know, this is how other people experience me because I have ME. I am not less of a person. I didn't start out as less of a person and I am not now less of a person. So I will in the next section talk about some more of my, um, my volunteer activities, my community building, because as well as knowing the deficits I'm running under, I think it's super important because I know I'm not alone in this. I know for a fact I'm not. And so in understanding my story, perhaps some of our abled listeners are able to understand that when a person develops a health obstacle like a mitochondrial disorder, they, they don't suddenly lose their value or their ability to contribute. So that will be more in, um, in the next sections.